From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. There are some basic objective kind of moral truths of, of taking care of the elderly and the children and not abusing people and, and, and these kinds of things. And when we see that go astray, or when we see people serving themselves, it is a call to say it's time to speak out and, and to do it with humor, kind of do it through the back door. Uh, rather than with rage and kind of confronting people. Confronting people, we're rarely going to win, and we're not going to change any opinions. But by coming and just poking someone in the ribs, uh, they may begin to see the joke themselves. Terry Linval is the C.S. Lewis Professor of Communication and Christian Thought at Virginia Wesleyan College. He's the author of God Mocks, A History of Religious Satire from the Hebrew Prophets to Stephen Colbert. He's with me via Skype from Virginia Beach. Welcome, Dr. Linval, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. It's good to be with you. Well, tell me about this fascinating book. How were you inspired to take on a project like this to chronicle religious satire from biblical characters to the present? Well, I grew up in a church that perhaps didn't laugh as much as it should, but I had parents Hmm. who were devout but hilarious people. And I think their kind of earthiness, their honesty to what went on, I began to see this disconnect between my own life growing up and some of the more official established churches. Yes, because religion often seems to be a little dour. It, it does. And in fact, I think that's one of the great lines that Jesus has that when he, he warns against those who look dismal, uh, those who fast, uh, particularly during Lent, uh, we, we see that kind of solemn ascetic approach to what the faith is all about. And uh, humor really is part of our life. And so a whole study of laughter and humor became part of my life because I enjoyed it so much. What kind of humor did your uh, parents engage in? Was it satire? Uh, there, there was a little bit of, of sarcasm, but there was probably more joy. Uh, mm. C.S. Lewis in, uh, the, in uh, the Screwtape Letters talks about four kinds of laughter. Uh, he says joy, which is the kind of laughter of heaven. It's just, just enjoying uh, God and his, his creatures. And then fun, which is a kind of play, the joke proper, and flippancy. And flippancy is that kind of sarcasm. But in between flippancy and the joke proper is satire. And to be able to realize that there is a way we know we ought to live, and yet we don't live that way, this kind of contradiction or incongruity, it, it becomes the basis for laughter. And, and my parents would laugh at everything. I mean, when we were sitting down to eat or drink or talk, and there was a lot of kind of teasing and playfulness back and forth. But there, there was kind of a joy of this gift and an appreciation for it. So I, I became, I, I got to look at humor more from a very positive way from the church. And then at Fuller Seminary, I had some wonderfully funny professors. And I, I think what they were able to do is give me a perspective like David Hubbard, the former president, who could take us into wisdom literature and, and show us the humor and the irony uh, that was embedded there. Yeah, well, let's talk about that for a little bit. Uh, some of the uh, Hebrew scriptures, perhaps, uh, the prophets or the wisdom literature. Well, what, are, what are some of the uh, funny satires that we often miss? Well, I, I think there, there are a couple, and two different kinds of humor. There is the best, most quoted uh, prophet of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and that's Elijah. And when he begins to mock the prophets of Baal, mm-hmm. uh, they're out having their basically their super Baal contest where uh, they are flagellating themselves, whipping and, and going into a frenzy to try to get their God to respond uh, to the altar, the meat on the altar. And Elijah begins to mock them. And he says, you know, is your God, your God gone on vacation? Is he relieving himself? Um, and, and so this kind of mocking goes on. But you notice, too, the satirist at this point doesn't feel quite secure after he's even won the battle. He has to go hide 
from Jezebel and uh, goes into a cave. But the other kind of laughter I found in Genesis in the story of Abraham and Sarah. And I wrote probably the, the, the best book I've written on laughter is called The Mother of All Laughter, uh, Sarah and the Genesis of Comedy. And it's the only book my wife has read and laughed at. <laughs> but in it, I, I took these five verses and did kind of a midrash on each verse. Uh, and the first verse was, and Sarah laughed to herself. So I asked, what do 90-year-old pregnant women in the desert laugh at? And if you begin to look, it's Abraham. She laughs at her husband, thinking that he would get excited in his 90s where he never did in his 20s. And so you've got this kind of mix of sex and laughter with her. Secondly, the Lord says, and why did Sarah laugh? And uh, here's omniscient God can't figure out women. Third, Sarah says, I did not laugh. And the Lord said, yes, you did. So here we find that Sarah denies her own body, uh, the, the source of all humor. And God comes back and affirms, no, I made you to laugh. And then fourth, God says, he participates in this great joke. He says, when the child is born, call him Isaac, Ishak, in Hebrew meaning laughter. Call your kid laughter. So she becomes the mother of all laughter. And then finally, she says at the end, everyone who hears of this will laugh with me. And so this community of laughter comes about. So you have this kind of positive, surprising laughter in Genesis, but then you have the kind of darker laughter in the prophets and Ecclesiastes and other places. The book of Jonah is satire as well, uh, poking fun of those who wish to see their enemies suffer. We often miss the satire in Jonah and in the Bible because we take texts too literally. Would you agree? Yes, very much so. And Jonah it was a great comic character uh, because here is a prophet who's successful, but, but he's so upset that he's successful. Right. I mean, why, why did you spare the Ninevites? Why didn't you just massacre them? But you have the cows repenting and everything else. So in one sense, it's almost a parody of all the other prophets of saying mm. God's grace covers over everyone. And it's, it's a wonderful story, comic story, I think, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. You're listening to Progressive Spirit with John Chuck. My guest is Terry Linval. He's the author of God Mocks, a history of religious satire from the Hebrew prophets to Stephen Colbert. So now satire, it isn't just um, making fun, right? There is a, there, there is a, you mentioned a moral aspect uh, to satire. It has to have uh, wit and moral purpose. Yeah, I, I think classic satire uh, from Juvenal and Horace and even Isaiah and Hosea, uh, when you look at what they're doing, there, there are two tendencies. The first tendency is to bring about some kind of moral reform or spiritual change. And it, so it has this very positive purpose. But secondly, it uses wit or humor or sarcasm and mocking to bring this about. And so that's why I see the prophet, I mean, the gift of prophecy as one of being the satirist. It's, mm. it's very much so that um, you could tell the gospel or the truth uh, either solemnly or humorously, just as you can say it in Greek or Latin or German or English. There, there's a way of doing it. The truth can come out in that way. And um, this is important. One, one of um, my old friends, Rabbi Leon Klinecki from New York, said, said, Terry, the problem with all of you Christians is that you read the Bible so solemnly. He says, why don't you pick up kind of a, a Yiddish Brooklyn accent? Uh, for Jesus, when he, when he talks about the whitewashed tombs, you know, or he, he talks about lawyers. If, if you add this kind of accent, all of a sudden, you find it's not a kind of a Southern Baptist solemnity, but it, it's more of a very kind of clever Jewish way of speaking and recognizing life. I remember uh, one biblical scholar uh, said that uh, Jesus was uh, one of the first Jewish stand-up comics. He is, and, and very self-effacing, uh, and, and just really fun. But, but looking at lawyers and religious leaders, I mean, he took mm -hmm. them on with delight. 
And you can almost see a twinkle in his eye. Why would children enjoy him so much? You know, why would disciples, these, these men, hang around with him unless there was this kind of sense of not only kind of spiritual purpose, but, but humor and enjoyment, a pleasure of his company? Yeah, because you can be a moralist and, and be upset about everything in the world, but really a drag. <laughs> Very much so, as most of us are at times. So, uh. yeah, I think you mentioned in the book about uh, uh, university professors who kind of suck the joy out of life. Oh, oh, we do, we do. We go and we make a dissertation out of everything. I mean, here, this is one of my problems that uh, I, you get too much of this information in, and, and you lose your sense of humor of going to this. And um, my my wife is is a great kind of balance for me. Karen came and said. I said, well, you know, I want to be like God, and, and God mocks in the Bible, so I think I have a gift of mocking. She says, you can mock like God when you're as good as God. So I have a long way to go uh, to try this. <laughs> you know, God mocks, but there's also a verse in the Bible about not mocking God. Talk about that a little bit, the, 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 the both of the mocking, the, the good and the bad of that. Yeah, I, I think the, the kind of dangers of mocking is that it distances us from those who we are scoffing at. Mm-hmm. And, and yet God allowed himself in uh, on the cross to be scoffed. I mean, that's that's one of the things where they basically stick out their tongue at him. They they mock him. They razz him. And yet he takes it uh, in the time. But but God recognizes that he's big enough to be mocked. Uh, go ahead and give me all the arrows and quills that you have. But on the, on the other hand, too, mocking is not like satire because you don't have love. And I, I think the best mm. satirists are those that, mock themselves, they satirize themselves, and then they take that one step further to their neighbors, whom they are called to love. Uh, and so, so you have to have this kind of love that, that C.S. Lewis recognized. I don't mock other people's sins. I basically mock my own. I see where I've gone astray. And if I kind of put that out in public, I would see other people will recognize that. I, I think the Gospel of Mark is wonderful because we find so much humor in there. After every miracle, uh, Mark talks about how they had something to eat. Or Jesus said, give them something to eat. But there's that great line at the end of the gospel in the in the Passion narrative where he's in Gethsemane with um, Jesus in Gethsemane with all the disciples. And they come to arrest him. And there's that one line of identification that nobody ever preaches on that Mark, I think, is identifying himself. And he said there was one young man following Jesus wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And then they seized him, but he left the linen sheet behind and ran away naked. So you have the first streaking in the Bible at this <laughs> most solemn of moment uh, there where Mark uh, says, I was there, but and I was really kind of noticed because of certain shortcomings. <laughs> I never actually knew about that. The first streaker is in uh, in the Gospel of Mark. There, yes. <laughs> Talk about this uh, quad of satire. You make that throughout your book um, on the, this kind of XY axis of, of ridicule on one end, moral purpose on the other, uh, humor at the top, rage at the bottom. Kind of reminded me echoes of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. But, oh, uh, yes, very, very much so. I, I teach at a Wesleyan school now, Virginia Wesleyan College. And so uh, the quadrilateral is always there. But but I, I began to look at um, th- this kind of quad and see the two poles of being humor and moral purpose as the ideal poles. But there is the kind of antonym to these. Uh, instead of humor, we might have rage. We might have kind of a righteous indignation. Mm-hmm. And if you kind of put this moral purpose with, with a rage, you get the angry prophets. You get kind of... Uh, MSNBC and Fox News. You get the two extremes where they're just angry and they're trying to be funny, but it comes out as sarcasm. Um, or even rage and ridicule is even kind of angrier and worse. And there's no 
kindness to it whatsoever. Now, ridicule and humor can be more enjoyable. It's Saturday Night Live and the church lady and everything else, and, and you have fun with it, and it doesn't leave kind of uh, scars on the on the back of your, your heart. But it's when you bring humor and moral purpose together. And, and one of the purposes in the book was to show how the church has been filled, the pews filled and the pulpits filled with people who did bring together humor uh, and, and wit and a moral purpose or, or a serious point. Progressive Spirit, Spirituality, Social Justice, ProgressiveSpirit.net. My guest is Terry Linval. He's the author of God Mocks, a history of religious satire from the Hebrew prophets to Stephen Colbert. Well, let's talk about some of those in, in history. Um, I, I remember reading J- Jonathan Swift's uh, Gulliver's Travels and, and recognizing, you know, the satire there of the Yahoos and the Winhams and whatnot. Was, was, would, would that be in the uh, quadrant of, um, wh- where, where would that be? He would, um, th- there's, there's probably less of a moral purpose um, in, in Gulliver's Travels as much as kind of a satire on the state. But I, I mm-hmm. think you find more of his moral purpose and humor in his other lesser-known work, A Tale of the Tub, uh, in which he puts these three men in a boat. And they've each been bequeathed a garment from their father. So the Father God has given to these three men, uh, Peter, Jack, and um, Martin. He's given them all kind of this clothing. And so you get Peter, St. Peter of the Roman Catholic Church. You get Jack Calvin of, of the Puritans, and uh-huh. then you get Martin Luther of the Lutherans. And they each have their, their garment, but Peter begins to kind of dress him up, his up. It becomes so lavish and, and so opulent that you see the satire that he's saying to the Roman Catholic Church, what you have done so much is you've made a show, kind of ostentatious kind of pomp and circumstance of who you are, rather than let the coat be something that covers you and is good. Uh, for for John Calvin, unfortunately, he said, you've taken everything off, even the buttons, that you're, you're so stern and austere. I mean, this is the kind of uh, Presbyterian church that Mark Twain ran away from. He yeah. said, you know, they're, they're never going to raise their voices. They're just too orderly and, and too too rational. They're, they're lawyers, uh, basically. But Martin, he liked a little better, and because Martin had kind of a balance to what was going on and was closer to the Anglican church at the time. And so he makes these kind of little points as he goes through. Um, there are others who, who look at um, it, and I can find more of a kind of a rage with Mencken against the church. Mm-hmm. And H.L. Um, Mencken, the great satirist of the early 20th century, the journalist there. But, I mean, he looked at the Anglican church and said, essentially, it's replaced the cross with an orgasm, that they're more <laughs> concerned about sexual equality than they are about sin. And he was not within the camp. He was not within the church saying this, but just looking and, and saying that. And even someone like Nietzsche um, looks at the church and says, um, basically, there are problems because they don't rejoice. They, they don't live out their dance that God has given them. And so other people come and, and they have this real, real wit and real kind of moral purpose to say, look at yourself in the mirror, church, and see what you're not doing right. Yeah, and another one might be uh, you had mentioned in your book Robert Ingersoll. Now, he, he would also be more perhaps on the, uh, on the rage end of the quadrant, right? Oh, yeah, he was was very angry. Um, one thing in the book, I, I tried to deal with people who were not only within the church, but those outside the church who saw the hypocrisy and the folly that, that we practice. And Ingersoll and Twain in his latter years and Mencken and some of these other, Ambrose Bierce, most of these Americans at the end of the 20th century just saw a very kind of corrupt and lukewarm church and so attacked it. And Ingersoll was, was one 
that that saw, I think, from his own experience. It was, it was interesting, though, when he was brought to trial um, uh, for for immorality, the prosecutor was his former wife. And so there's an irony huh. in poor Ingersoll. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, that, that definitely is a... Uh, an indictment, isn't it? <laughs> it? It is. So, and and he would not pay for the education of his daughter. So that uh, we, we find in all of us that there are these kind of openings. Well, as you look through the history of uh, religious satire, uh, it, did it evolve at all? Has it changed in any way, or is it pretty much uh, similar, but from the moderns to the ancients? I, I think there are a lot of things that carry on that are very similar. I, both um, Hosea and Isaiah again, talk about those people who would worship their wood. And, and there's kind of a, even a sexual hmm. implication behind that as well. And today that becomes kind of one of the main things in the Episcopal Church, uh, which is so concerned about its money and its uh, freedom for expression and everything else. And I'm an Episcopal, that's why I'm able to say that. Um, look at our ch- own church that is there. In fact, mm-hmm. who was it? It was Ronald Knox, had, had just a great perspective about how the Anglican Church tried to bring all the churches together, but get rid of doctrine. So they invited atheists, they invited Buddhist and Hindu, and they said, basically, doctrine doesn't matter. Dogma doesn't matter in our church. We'll just all be one, except it became a problem of diet. And when the Hindus and the, Bo- and the, the Muslims began to say, we don't want pork and we don't want alcohol, the Anglicans could no longer coexist because you could not take any beef or bacon away from the Brit. That's the one thing that is sacred to them. Forget the doctrine of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, but beef and bacon, those things are holy. <laughs> and, of course, the satire there is that, is that uh, if we don't have doctrine, we'll, we'll always find something to be will, divided yes, about. Yes, we'll disagree with, exactly. Uh, now, um, well, here, here's the question. Does satire work? Um, does satire just make the satirist feel better? Uh, great question, <laughs> and a rough question, too. Um there are times when it has worked. Uh, C.S. Lewis received a letter from a young man who had read his screw tape letters. And he said, the young man said, you know, I have been a little demon around the house, but since I read your book, my, my mother <laughs> begins to notice the change in me. He said, uh-huh. I, I'd seen my selfishness reflected in that letter. Uh, but most of the time, I would say there is a question about the efficacy of satire. Uh, even many satirists began to kind of doubt if they really had any impact. And uh, one of the great eras of successful satire, one of the dominant eras, was the 30s in Nazi Germany. And we have more satire then, and we can see where that led us. Uh, mm. Satire did not have an impact upon those who take themselves so seriously. North Korea, satire would never work. And we may even get into a place with our own country where satire is not recognized for what it is and has become just more mocking of one side or the other. Yeah. For example, you mentioned, of course, modern authors, uh, Stephen Colbert and Bill Maher. Is there a difference? Yeah. Bill, Bill Maher uh, has, he may be changing. Uh, I, I will give him that. But generally, there's just an anger and a, a ranting against others. There is something in Colbert which his kind of Catholic faith really tempers much of what he does. But he is able to take on and kind of strip away uh, the folly and the stupidity and and the pride of many of his guests, whether they're atheists or religious people. But there there is a kindness to him uh, that really comes out where he seems to enjoy and love the people and talk to the people who might be his enemies. 
So um, hmm. I, I'm doing a talk right now on looking at C.S. Lewis and Colbert of how they are very similar. They par parallel fools. Uh, they both lost a parent when they were young. They both went into their, their stages of atheism. Uh, they both had this kind of strange encounter with God uh, through scripture and through friends. And, and they both had been bullied as children and went to books and read books and then became kind of humorous bullies themselves. Both of them were able to use humor to kind of take on their audiences uh, and their readers. But but something that, that is very affirming, they have something they will not mock. There's something sacred in their mind and in their hearts that they hold on to. And it is the, the kind of the Catholic faith, Anglican faith for both of them. There is a need for satire to be in that uh, upper right quadrant of, of, of humor and moral purpose. has to have a sense of, of the good uh, yes. to which to um, point. Yeah, well, we, we have to know what is good. And, mm -hmm. and there are a few things we know where is good. Is how, and, and in a book called The Abolition of Man, Lewis talks about how across all cultures and religions, there are some basic objective kind of moral truths of, of taking care of the elderly and the children and not abusing people and, and, and these kinds of things. And when we see that go astray, or when we see people serving themselves, it is a call to say it's time to speak out and, and to do it with humor, kind of do it through the back door uh, rather than with rage and kind of confronting people. Confronting people, we're rarely going to win and we're not going to change any opinions. But by coming and just poking someone in the ribs, uh, they may begin to see the joke themselves. Progressive spirit, spirituality, social justice. My guest is Terry Linval, author of God Mocks, a history of religious satire from the Hebrew prophets to uh, Stephen Colbert. I want to talk about um, the uh, the idea that satire is uh, really only works when it's against someone more powerful than you. And that's also when it's a little bit more dangerous, too. Yeah, that, that's one of my favorites. Uh, we are warned in the book of Proverbs um, not to mock the poor. Uh, do not ever mock anyone below you. But the calling is to look at power, those in power, and, and to take them on. They are the ones who need it more than anyone else. And so um, we, we look at Trump and Hillary Clinton, and both of them invite mockery, invite satire on that. And uh, another quote by C.S. Lewis is simply, he said, uh, it, it is more dangerous to cut off the toe of a live giant than to cut off the head of a dead one. Mm. But it's much more fun stepping on the toes of a live giant because here you, you are taking on life and you feel the passion and the enjoyment of what you're doing. But don't take on those who are poor and can't defend themselves. Take on people that you are not equipped even to deal with, but go like David uh, before Goliath. And it gets to another idea, I think, from the Hebrew that's very important, and that's the, the word davar, D-A-B-A-R. Davar in Hebrew means both word and action. And so satire is both a word, but it also has efficacy. It also has action connected to it. If you remember, when Goliath came out to David, he started by mocking him and calling him kind of a runt that he was going to feed to the birds. Mm -hmm. And the sword itself, satire is considered a sword and a weapon at times. And so the tongue can go out and be both a word and an action that actually does danger to other people. You mentioned C.S. Lewis uh, a number of times today. Is C.S. Lewis at the, the top of the list of an effective satirist? Yes, unfortunately, I did my dissertation at the University of Southern California on C.S. Lewis's communication. And so I am so uh, immersed in, in his writings that, that I find him to do that. And 
not only as kind of a literate person, a person who was called to study English and Renaissance literature, and it was by studying his works that it led me back to people like Skelton and Swift and Pope and others. But um, he, he had an honesty about himself. And I think a group of friends and the Inklings, when they would come together, they would mock each other unmercifully, but they were so connected to one another. But as I began to look at Lewis, I began to say, now who shaped him? And that's really what the book, this book is as much as anything else. But I said, who are the people that wrote satire and humor that began to feed into Lewis's life that made him the satirist he is? And um, one of the key people whom I found funnier than Lewis was G.K. Chesterton, hmm. the three, four hundred pound Roman Catholic journalist. Um, just delightful. I mean, when, when he was asked by a journalist, he said, what's wrong with the world? Chesterton replied in a letter, dear sirs. I am huh. sincerely yours. <laughs> we recognize we're right. the problem. And then how do we kind of satirize ourselves? Uh, that reaches out to other people and I think wins and woos them uh, into the kingdom. And of course, part of one's character is how one responds uh, to satire. Uh, you mentioned the story of, in the Bible about King David and the guy, uh, you know, throwing rocks at him and, and David telling his yeah. troops, you know, don't cut off his head because he may have something to say. Exactly. And, and Shimei uh, is out there, is really is one of the first journalists, but we wouldn't call him that. <laughs> but he's there kind of throwing stones at David and uh, doesn't really care about doing any good to him. But David says, OK, let's just listen. Let's, and I think this is what most candidates should do. They should just listen to the satire and the, look at the political cartoons and say, what is it really saying about us? And is it a wrong perception or is there something wrong with us? Um, of course, later on, when uh, David did come back into his kingdom, he said he wouldn't hurt him. But he told his son to go ahead and kill him. <laughs> so there, there's no good for Shimei. The satirist ends up pretty much drubbed and beaten up. Uh, Dryden himself uh, went into one of his kind of coffee shops. And in there, uh, there was a marquee who came in and drubbed him with his cane. And uh, he says, that was for insulting me. But then he gave him a purse of, of so many crowns. And he says, but that's for your wit. And um, Alexander Pope would walk around with two giant Great Dane dogs and a pistol because um, it was dangerous to be a satirist. Satirist, even though you have free speech, you might be the, the one who ends up getting beat up. Satire, dangerous business. Thank you, Terry Linval, for this delightful book uh, and for being with me today. My, my pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. For links to podcasts and more about the show, go to progressivespirit.net. That's progressivespirit.net. Progressive Spirit is free to radio stations through Pacifica Audio Port and available via podcast to your favorite listening device. Progressive Spirit is produced at KBOO Portland. I'm John Schuck. Be well.